0: Okay, hey, we are live. I thank you again for joining us for this new episode of the podcast. If you would like to sign up for our email list so you can be kept up to date with the newest and the next podcast coming after this, go to Athletic Holistic Systems. That's holistic with an H.com and you go to the sports performance podcast tab and you will scroll all the way down and you will type in your name, your email, and you'll press that send button and you should get a confirmation email sent to your inbox. So this is your host, And I am excited, I'm actually really excited for this topic. A lot of research has went into this series, and this will actually be uh, potentially a two to three uh, podcast series, and it's entitled, Can Sport Performance Professionals Be the Catalyst to End Cardiovascular Disease and Biological Aging After Your Sport Career? And that's critical after your sport career, because this doesn't mean just elite level athletes, professional level athletes. We're talking about people. And when I'm talking about attrition rates and we're talking about what the research, what the literature actually says, let's use baseball, for example, where we have over 25 million kids between baseball and softball that participate between ages six and 12 years old. Once that transitions to high school, so we're talking about 12 years old to 13 years old, potentially, it drops down to 300,000. So that means we have a lot of former athletes who ran through that culture, who ran through those experiences, who may or may not have had nutrition advice to boost sports performance because their motivation was extremely high and did not. Or we're not able through various reasons to get to that next level of playing higher competition, that is the high school level. But nonetheless, they are former athletes. So this is why I think this topic is extremely important. And we're going to go over an article because, and I'll go over a little bit again for those who may be new. Is on this podcast, what I do is I go over either a particular research paper a research topic, an article, social media content, and I dissected line by line, and I dissected sentence by sentence or page by page, line by line, uh, column by column. And we're gonna try to bring the realities of what this may mean in the context of how it applies to sports performance and professionals and then those who are on the other than that, so the athlete or a client. So let's shift over to my web browser. And if you're looking at this visually, I'm shifting over to my web browser now. Sorry about the delay, I don't know, oh, here we go. Okay, so a marvelous article, marvelous article written by Alex Hutchinson. August 8, 2017. And if we're keeping the title that I provided for this podcast, can sports performance professionals be the catalyst, catalyst to prevent cardiovascular disease and biological aging after your sport career? So he wrote an article called are endurance athletes more susceptible to diabetes? And so the question is, does a life of athletics, does a life of exercise, does a life of physical activity provide you with extra protection against disease in various conditions? And so this article tackles this. I mean, there's a lot of gems in this article. If you're looking visually, it's called, Are Endurance Athletes More Susceptible to Diabetes? The counter theory has pervaded books, studies, and Reddit threads, and it's something of a rally cry for LCHF converts. So that's low-carb, high-fat converts. And we'll, we'll talk about this as well, because we've got we to bring some clarity to this discussion. But while there may be some benefit to monitoring insulin levels, there's no need to cut out all carbs quite yet. So let's get started with the articles. I don't, you know, again, like, you know, these tend to get a little lengthy. So, you know, you may have to put it on pause, come back to it, you know, on another day. But I'd rather give you all the information at once. And then at your leisure, you're able to listen to it um, and replay and go back through it. So, quote, let's get this party started. It was a hard bunk during a 16 mile race up New Zealand's 6,000 foot avalanche peak in 2013 that made Felicity Thomas, an undergraduate engineering student at the nearby University of Canterbury, begin thinking about her blood sugar levels. She tried to follow the usual sports nutrition advice, sucking down sugary gels to replenish the carbohydrates that her muscles were burning and to keep her blood sugar levels stable. But she struggled to get the balance right and ended up crawling to the finish before throwing up in an ice cream bucket. Surely, thought Thomas, there must be a better way of managing in race fuel. As it happened, Thomas was an intern that summer at the university's Center of Bioengineering, which was researching the clinical potential of continuous glucose monitors, or tiny sensors inserted under the skin of the abdomen that track blood sugar levels in real time. She took one of the expired monitors lying around the lab. If I could spot embedding blood sugar, blood sugar lows before they happen, she wondered, would I be able to ward them off with a well timed gel? Could I make myself bonk proof? So this this energy collapse continuing. A week of self experimentation convinced Thomas that the technique might be useful, and she soon embarked on a Ph.D. studying the potential uses of glucose monitoring in athletes. But the outcome of her initial pilot study on t- in runners and cyclists which was published last year in the journal of diabetes science and technology wasn't what she expected excuse me so let's take a look at this published uh, article that she's referencing get this off zoom Zoom. so here's the article or the research paper it's called and this is for those who are listening um or just listening, not no, no visual. Uh, does training spare insulin secretion and diminish glucose levels in real life? So let's like, let's see what the the results are. And I have the full papers uh, as well. And again, if you sign up, shoot an email. I can send you these full papers if you cannot uh, find them. So. Looking at the results really quick. In response to same relative oral glucose loads, glucose and C-peptide responses were similar in athletes compared to sedentary subjects. 24-hour integrated glucose and C-peptide concentrations did not differ between athletes and sedentary subjects, and insulin concentrations tended to be lower in athletes compared with sedentary subjects. And again, this makes intuitive sense that athletes would be more insulin sensitive um, as compared to controls or non-athletes or people who are less active people who potentially have carbohydrate stores or muscle glycogen that's capped off and therefore the glute 4 receptor so glute is upregulated when you exercise are like, Hey, you know, we're good. You know, when that insulin's coming in and, and basically handing out, knocking at the door, like, Hey, you know, can you let me in? You know, the muscles like, Hey, we're good. Like we're, we're already full. We're good. So this is very intuitive uh, in this finding here. And like I said, if you want to see the full paper, it's called does training spare insulin secretion and diminish glucose levels later in life. But Let me make sure this is the correct uh, paper. Oh, it's actually not the right paper. All right, so I take that back. Let, let me let me scratch what I just said. So the paper I just referenced is the wrong paper and I apologize. So the paper that is mentioned and um, the outcome of her initial pilot study on 10 Runners and Cyclists, which was published last year in the Journal of Diabetes Science Technology, wasn't what she expected. So I'm clicking the link and I actually had the wrong paper up. Uh, and so the title of this paper by Felicity Thomas, who we're talking about in the original article, published on Outside Online, which is the title of the article, is, Are Endurance Athletes More Susceptible to Diabetes? by Alex Hutchison. And if you're following visually, then you can see this clearly. And for those who are listening uh, with no visual, the name of the article uh, or the research paper that was published by Felicity Thomas is called Blood Glucose Levels of Sub-Elite Athletes During Six Days of Free Living. Now, the incorrect paper that I just stated, does training spare insulin secretion and diminish glucose levels in real life? That paper I will touch on later. So apologies for for mixing that up. So looking at the blood glucose levels of sub-elite athletes during six days of free living. So let's look at the results of this study uh, really quick on what she found. So four out of 10 athletes studied spent more than 70% of the total monitoring time above six millimoles per liter, even with the two-hour period after meals is excluded. Fasting blood glucose was also in the ADA-defined prediabetes range for 3 out of 10 athletes. Only 1% spent substantial time below 4 millimoles per liter, which was largely due to significantly lower energy intake compared to recommendations. Conclusions. Contrary to expectations, high blood glucose appears to be more of a concern for athletes than low blood glucose, even those with the highest energy expenditure and consuming below the recommended carbohydrate intake. This study warrants further investigation on the recommended diets and the blood glucose of athletes to better determine the causes and impact of this hyperglycemia on overall athlete health. So. This should be very interesting because you would think that athletes who are highly active would have lower blood glucose concentrations and potentially hypoglycemic if they're not meeting the recommended grams per pound body weight or grams per pound lean body mass of carbohydrate intake. You would think they may be suffering because if they're you know, turning over uh, sugar in the blood that it would need a constant supply, but we see the, act, the, the actual opposite uh, in reality from what her initial inference was from her study, was that athletes are suffering potentially from hyperglycemia, which is definitely a risk for prediabetes and diabetes, depending on how chronic it is. But let's continue with our original article. Quote. And this is now the analysis by uh, the author of this article, which is entitled "Are Endurance Athletes?" Or, excuse me, Are endurance athletes more susceptible to diabetes? And if you're just tuning in, I uh, potentially messed up two articles. And when I mean messed up, I just accidentally had them trade places, and I reviewed the first article uh, out of order. If you're just tuning in. So I don't want anyone confused. And if you're still along the ride, then you you should be up to speed. Quote. Instead of bonk inducing blood sugar lows, the more common problem in her subjects, who typically averaged at least six hours of training a week, was high blood sugar throughout the day. An outcome that pointed to an elevated risk of type two diabetes in these seemingly super fit athletes. They're super fit athletes, yet they're walking around with hyperglycemia. Quote. This is from Felicity Thomas. Quote, I was incredibly surprised to see the results, Thomas says. It seemed contrary to almost everything else in the field. The idea that serious endurance athletes might be particularly susceptible to diabetes flies in the face of medical dogma. But it's out there on Reddit threads and best selling diet books, and now in the scientific literature, end quote. More than a third of Americans have prediabetes, a condition marked by the body's inability to keep blood sugar levels in a safe range, which often progresses to full-fledged diabetes. While type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition that usually develops at a young age, type 2 diabetes is about 10 times more common and can develop at any point in a person's life. Both types of diabetes ravage organs, blood vessels, and nerves, and if left unchecked, can lead to blindness and limb amputation annual cost for the 29 million people in the United States with diabetes are now 245 billion and growing according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention let's take a look at this really quick so now we're on the CDC's page You want to look at this diabetes, pre-diabetes prevalence. And this is, report was based on 2020. So we see this number is actually bigger now. This, this article was written in 2017. We're now three years removed. And when I mean three years, this update, this report from the CDC is updated uh, for 2020. There are a total of 300, 300. There's a total of 34.2 million people who have diabetes or 10%, 10 10.5% of the US population. And there's 7.3 million people who are walking around undiagnosed, potentially. So that's 21.4% are undiagnosed. So you're talking about there's over 40 million people. Oh, excuse me, actually that diagnosed and non-diagnosed is linked together. But there's 34 million people walking around with diabetes. They've been diagnosed with diabetes. 7.3 million of those 34.2 million are undiagnosed. Now, when you look at prediabetes, there's a total of 88 million people aged 18 years or older who have prediabetes, which is, if not 100%, is 99.9% able to be eradicated through primary prevention but I just wanted to create that context. We're not talking about type one diabetes, talking about pre-diabetes or type two diabetes, all right? Through primary prevention, we should be able to handle that. Continuing with the article, if you're just joining, we're reading an. I'm reading an article or going over an article called, Are Endurance Athletes More Susceptible to Diabetes? It was written by Alex Hutchison in 2017. And if you would like to sign up for our email list, go to athleticholisticsystems.com. Go to the Sports Performance Professional Podcast tab, type in your email, and hit the send button. Getting back to the article. Quote, in fact, the number of kids with diabetes has quadrupled since 1980. This dramatic rise in type 2 diabetes is usually attributed to obesity and lack of exercise. So the idea that serious endurance athletes might be particularly susceptible flies in the face of medical dogma. But it's out there on Reddit threads and best-selling diet books and now scientific literature just repeating what was in bold. The thinking is that, quote, the average endurance athlete consumes way too much sports drinks, explains Patrick Davitt, an assistant professor of exercise science at Mercy College in Dobbs Ferry, New York. Large doses of sugar, independent of its calories, lead to blood sugar spikes that, it's assumed, eventually dull your insulin sensitivity and raise your risk of type 2 diabetes. One of the first to make this connection in a sports context was a former surgeon named Peter Atia, if I'm saying that correctly, who gave an impassioned Ted Med talk in 2013 that has since been viewed more than 2 million times. A long distance swimmer and cyclist, Atia, according, uh, according, recounted his surprise when in 2009, he discovered that he had insulin resistance despite exercising for three or four hours a day. He had insulin uh, resistance. And he was exercising three or four hours per day. At Tia, who went on to found the nonprofit research organization, Nutrition Science Initiative, with prominent low-carb advocate Gary Talbez. Talbees? Talbees? I think that's Talbys. I'm saying that correct. My my bad, Gary, if, I, if I'm saying your name wrong, I'll take the L. Continuing. Suggested that underlying cause of his problems might be an excessive and an excess of carbohydrate in particular refined grains sugars and starches now let me pause really quick and we'll talk about this a little bit later potentially so it's this notion that carbohydrates are the enemy now, look at the, 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 the lingo, the language, the semantics that was used. in excess, in excess or excess of carbohydrate. So it's not carbs that are the issue. It's a behavioral loading issue. When I mean behavioral loading, I mean how we load the carbs, when we take the carbs, what we do and what choices we make with how we're using carbohydrates. That makes sense. Because if you look at humans and what humans are designed to digest, I say designed to digest, not, not that you're not designed to digest anything, but there's going to be different layers. And I mean different layers. You're going to have higher predispositions to digest certain foods based on your biochemistry, based on your biology and your physiology. So let's use starches, for example. Now we run into an issue with starches because we have two types of digestion. And when I mean digestion, we have a mechanical type. So chewing, mastication can be a first layer, a layer of digestion in relation to starches. And then we have a chemical. So, alpha amylase, for example, in the mouth, pancreatic amylase, for example, um, in the small intestine, can be a second layer of digestion for starches. Because starches, we run into a digestibility issue because, in raw form, one, they don't taste that good. But if we bypass taste and we're in a situation where we have to eat starches in order to survive, then if you can't cook it you have to chew it and I, I don't have the study up but there was an evolutionary study uh, on starches and the introduction of starches into the diet potentially boosting brain uh, power you know use brain power or intelligence um, very vaguely but cooking starches saved almost 15 million shoes annually so you're talking about saving your teeth but that's not the point. But the point here is, is that you have a digestibility issue. So you need to be able to access the nutrients. And so you have to chew it and chew it in order to burst the starch granules that you can then let alpha amylase or salivary amylase in the, the mouth begin to convert that polysaturide to its disaturide form called maltose. Because you need maltose to be present once it has entered the mouth or gone through the esophagus down into the stomach, to pass through the stomach very quickly so it doesn't ferment in the stomach by the bacteria there, which there's nothing wrong with the bacteria, they're just doing their job. You then wanna get this disaturate to the small intestine so that pancreatic amylase can then metabolize it to its monosaccharide form, which is glucose and simple sugars. So if you don't cook it, a starch, you're not able to chew it enough in order to adequately burst all those starch granules. So you essentially are going to get undigested, unmetabolized polysaccharides. that if they do pass through the stomach quickly, which they should, if you don't eat them with anything else, you're going to have trouble digesting them in the small intestine. And if it doesn't sit there long enough, you're going to have undigested polysaccharides moving to the, through the uh, stomach or through the uh, intestines, which is not good because you can't extract the necessary nutrients from it. Now, when you cook starches, you now improve their digestibility. So you digest them in hot water because starch can't be hydrolyzed uh, or can't be hydrated, excuse me, uh, in cold water. So you have to heat the water. So you improve their digestibility meaning you don't need to chew them and you also don't need salivary amylase, which salivary amylase is not secreted in the presence of water. And salivary amylase also would be flushed with water as well. So even if it was present, the water would flush it out and it wouldn't have time to sit on the food and begin its metabolic process. So while you increase its digestibility of starches, you decrease the nutrient bioavailability because heat is going to degrade the vitamins. Heat is going to degrade the mineral content. So you have you so you see you have this trade-off. You don't you eat it raw, you have a digestibility issue. You eat it cooked, you have a nutrient availability. It's not as nutritious. So you have to ask yourself: are starches something which is the highest percent of the American diet, you have to ask yourself Are you designed physiologically to eat starches or was starches put into the diet? If you as a last resort, you can look this up. Is it a food that should be a staple of the diet or is it a last resource? So you're turning something that's a last resource into uh, a staple food, and that's just not the case. Now, fruits, on the other hand, which are already present in their monosaccharide form, which have adequate fiber, vitamins, minerals, it's hydrated, has water, water in its purest form. When I mean purest form, it has the necessary B vitamins, water-soluble vitamins, et cetera. You don't get that from spring water or regular water. It doesn't have B vitamins, in it, et cetera, all the things that you need for hydration and digestion. So that would be the ideal food source. And like I said, access carbohydrates. No one's telling you to go run, eat 50 apples. Same thing with refined grains, which particularly inhibit your iron absorption. So we're talking about anemia and various morbidities that exist with low iron because they have high phytates present, phytic acid present in grains that considerably, and even small amounts, we're talking about wheat, wheat bran, in small amounts can, I mean, completely stifle iron absorption, completely. And you can look this up, look up iron and phytic acid or iron and grains. So unless you sprout the grains, you can get rid of that phytic acid. But again, if you cook them on very high heat boil, etc., you're gonna destroy all the nutrients. So what I've told athletes, To do and what I've recommended is you sprout the grain, you sprout the nuts and seeds, and if you need to cook them, you cook them on a low temperature because they'll cook much quicker. It just takes a little bit longer, but they'll cook uh, cook much quicker, and you do not have to basically burn them. You know, set them on fire to get them going. Because again, you like you want to boil the rice, get it cooking, etc. So you don't have to use as high of temperature. So you can put a temperature constraint instead of hitting well above 212 degrees Fahrenheit. You may only hit 125 degrees Fahrenheit if that makes sense. So, I just want to keep that context there. Um, but let's move on. So now we have a, a good understanding of it's excess carbohydrates, refined grains, refined meaning they've been prepared and there's they've been um, what's the word that. I i'm looking for uh they've just been altered everything's been extracted and they've been refined and they the minerals back in which is obviously not the ideal situation and if you do go with whole grains you then run to the issue with phytic acid and if you use refined grains it doesn't have any nutrients and they have to add it back in there but let's continue with the article if you're just joining us the name of the article is are endurance athletes more susceptible to diabetes it's by alex hutchinson let's continue in similar vein, Tim Noakes, the South African researcher whose book The Law of Running remains perhaps the best known guide to the science of running announced in 2009 that he had uh, that he too had developed prediabetes and blamed it on the carb loading diet that he promoted for years. For endurance athletes, the, uh, the suggestion that their seemingly healthy obsession might carry a hidden health cost is hardly new. Such claims that running will ruin your knees, say, or cycling will make men infertile, don't always stand up to scrutiny. And the scientific consensus on this point still leans strongly in the opposite direction. Numerous studies have identified obesity, inactivity, and genetics as the three key risk factors for developing type two diabetes says Edward Horton, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a senior investigator at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Boston, who has spent a half century working with both non-diabetic and diabetic endurance athletes while studying glucose metabolism. Serious endurance athletes are neither obese nor inactive, and they can't change their genes. The demand of training The the demands of training mean that your muscles burn through so much glucose that high blood sugar should be a near impossibility, which goes contrary to what Felicity Thomas found, which these athletes were walking around with hyperglycemia. So what uh, Horton is saying is that the demands of training mean that your muscles burn through so much glucose that high blood sugar should be a near impossibility, says Horton. A long distance skier and runner himself. Quote, I'm a strong believer in a well-balanced diet, he says. But if you're a high-level endurance athlete, you can eat what you want. I mean, that that's the, the notion, right? We, you know, people use athletics working out as an excuse to overindulge. So we we see what we see a misuse and a misunderstanding of what exercise is and a a misunderstanding of what proper and complementary uh, dieting is, in conjunction with a high-performance lifestyle. Continuing, in fact, according to a 1989 study, Tour de France riders consume a pound of sugar per day, and a study of Kenyan runners found that they got 20 percent of their calories from the sugar they heap into their t- their tea and porridge. So, just but. Look at this. They consume a pound of sugar. Now, ask yourself, let's, let's go back to this discussion. Oh, you know, fruits are sugary. They fall in the same category. I would I would I would be hard pressed for you to eat a pound of sugar equivalent to what would equate to food weight in ounces or pounds in fruit and fresh fruit. I highly doubt doubt you'd be able to do that. Same thing. In this case, 20% of their calories from the sugar they heap into their tea and porridge. Uh, Study done on Kenyan Runners. I'd be hard-pressed for someone to take fresh fruits and eat equivalent to a pound of sugar. So that'd be 450 grams of sugar carbs just from fruit i'm saying is if an average banana has what i would say 25 i'll just use a throw it out 25 uh, grams and we'll say it's all you know we'll say it's all sugar depending on how ripe it is then we're talking about you'd have to eat 18 bananas i'm not saying you can't do it i'm just saying is i I don't know if you even want to do that and even in retrospect of a very active lifestyle and fruits requiring no energy for digestion because they're already in their monosaturated form. So you don't need to secrete salivary amylase. You don't need to secrete pancreatic amylase and and the sugars will get into the bloodstream by diffusion which requires no energy at all. And if you're active and don't overload your digestive system with a big meal and you were eating 18 bananas, See what happens. And when I say is, and this is what I say, I'm not advocating that you do to make that clear. But I do want you, if you do question that, to look at what the research says. And what I mean what the research says, the totality of the research. Don't look at it just from. The medical Western paradigm, look at it from the holistic perspective, look at it from the Eastern perspective, look at it from the Ayurvedic perspective, look at it from the homeopathic perspective, because you get to understand that there's many different perspectives on what? Digestibility, physiology, biochemistry, and the digestion of certain foods and nutrients. Because you have to ask yourself, and it's why I talk about haplotype. Because why, do, and again, I'm not saying humans are like other animals, but why do certain animals Why are certain animals able to eat a very small concentrated diet that potentially changes seasonally? They're not going out, oh, I need my starches, I need my grains, I need my seeds, I need my nuts, I need my my meat, I need my dairy, I need et cetera. They have very constrained diets. Everything they appear to potentially need is in a small core group of foods. That again, potentially change season. And again, I'm not a zoologist and I'm not looking into it like that, but these are types of questions that I ask. And again, I'm not advocating that anyone go eat 18 bananas. What I'm saying is you have to ask these questions more so than just running with an analysis and okay, let me change my eating because I read one thing here. No, ask, just continually ask questions and try to piece things together. That's a holistic uh, synergistic view of trying to yeah, get to a particular conclusion by going through many routes, turning over many stones, et cetera. Let's continue with the the article. Quote, researchers have found that elite endurance athletes have insulin sensitivity that is roughly three times higher than healthy non-athletes, meaning they can rapidly get the sugar they consume out of their bloodstream and into their muscles without having to produce excessive amounts of insulin. According to a 1992 study from the University of Copenhagen, the two factors seem to balance out perfectly. Athletes boost their insulin sensitivity in exact proportion to their increased carbohydrate intake. So they end up producing about the same overall amount of insulin on average as healthy non-athletes. Quote, at worst, it's a wash, says Michael Joyner, a physiologist at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So let's quickly take a look at this 1992 uh, study. And if you're following, Visually, we're at PubMed right now. And if you are listening um, only, the name of the study is called Does Training Spare Insulin Secretion and Diminish Glucose Levels in Real Life? So, again, if you want to sign up for the email list, go to athleticholisticsystems with an H.com. Go to the Sports Performance Professional Podcast tab. Type in your name, email. If you want these full articles and you can't find them yourself, send me an email. I will send them to you. So this is actually the article that I read uh, first, and I actually wanna elaborate on this a little bit. So quickly, I'm repeating what I said earlier, accidentally, what the results of this study was, um, in response to same relative oral glucose loads, meaning they were you know, they're eating relatively the same amount of glucose or ingesting, glucose and C-peptide responses were similar in athletes compared to sedentary subjects. 24 hour integrated glucose and C peptide concentrations did not differ between athletes and sedentary subjects and insulin concentrations tended to be lower in athletes compared with sedentary subjects. And what they did was they compared the untrained subjects uh, and trained subjects. Excuse me. They compared. With untrained subjects, trained subjects, the increased insulin sensitivity and decreased glucose-induced insulin secretion will tend to promote health by decreasing glucose levels and in insulin secretion, whereas the increased food intake will tend to increase these variables. To evaluate the net effect of training, we administered all glucose loads, making up identical fractions of daily carbohydrate intake. Furthermore, 24-hour plasma concentration profiles of glucose, C-peptide, and insulin were determined during uh, ordinary living conditions. So going back to the article, what this means is that they found that elite endurance athletes have insulin sensitivity that is roughly three times higher than healthy non-athletes. So meaning that when they ingest or uh, consume higher amounts of carbohydrates because their insulin sensitivity is three times as high, they're able to extract potentially the glucose out of the blood at the same rate as someone who has a normal healthy range of insulin sensitivity, if that makes sense. So the increase in carbohydrates is counteracted by the increase in insulin sensitivity and the rapidity uh, or the rapid ability of them to pull glucose out of the bloodstream. So it counteracts itself. You're eating more carbs, but you're able to remove it much quicker because insulin is just that sensitive. It's much more sensitive than someone uh, in a normal insulin sensitive range who is uh, not necessarily active, but is a healthy non-athlete as they classify. So hopefully uh, that that makes sense. And and point that I want to make, and I'll pull up a few other um, slides, is that Your nutrition is going to help, and they didn't necessarily talk about this, but your nutrition is also going to help alleviate the use of insulin in metabolizing food. This is why I go back to raw foods, particularly fruits and vegetables, because they have all those mineral cofactors, not many, if any, of the mineral antagonists that basically inhibit uh, a mineral from being uh, metabolized or uptake, uh, taken up uh, in the body during digestion. And they also have inadequate amounts, the present vitamins and minerals needed to digest and process the glucose, the sugars. So let, let, let's take a look at this really quick. So not this article. So I just mentioned vitamins and minerals and how important they are in digestion, especially being present in their unaltered forms and raw foods that you eat. So let's use an example of mineral antagonisms. So meaning something that's going to counteract a mineral doing its job. So it goes opposite of that mineral. So let's look at magnesium, which magnesium deficiency is particularly an issue in the United States and globally. And we see that potassium or excess protein nitrogen is a antagonist to magnesium being able to be utilized and uptake by the body. So that means that anything high in potassium potentially counteracts magnesium. So this goes to what? Food combinations that I kind of alluded to earlier when I said if you're gonna eat a starch or a fruit, you want it to have a quick transit time through the stomach so it does not ferment. And secondly, you don't want to eat it with anything because of improper food combinations that might not allow you to get the nutrients from the food you want the nutrients from. If That makes sense. So if I want to eat a banana, excuse me, if I want to eat spinach, let's say I want to eat kale that's high in magnesium, since leafy green vegetables are high in magnesium. Right? And I eat that kale in a smoothie with banana. It's high in potassium. You may actually be negating the magnesium. Uh, the, the you may be negating the nutritional value from the magnesium by offsetting it by combining it with a banana, the time potassium, if that makes clear sense. And you also see that excessive protein nitrogen is going to affect magnesium uptake, meaning I'm gonna pair this, this uh five-ounce steak that's high in protein with a green leafy green salad that's high in magnesium, but you're going to be offsetting that by the high protein. So you have to, so the point being is, is that this is a, it's, it's a complex way of looking at relationships on your plate, but it's also a necessary uh, evil. And when I mean evil, I don't mean it's bad, but I'm saying it's just a necessary process to understand this at a higher level. If you're really trying to optimize your high performance lifestyle. Because we are in charge of people, of people's careers, of people's health, et cetera. So, you know, your sports performance professional, your nutritionist, your strength coach, etc., they have a lot of power in their hands by suggesting things that could potentially potentially negatively affect your body long term and your pockets long term. So I just wanted to put this. Up here so that you can begin to see how i look at this okay so let's look at calcium for example an antagonist is magnesium phosphorus lots of fruits are high in phosphorus uh foods are high in phosphorus sulfur amino acids so sulfur-based amino acids like methionine arginine so potentially high protein can counteract calcium uptake same thing with vitamin d3 deficiency So you have to understand this. And same thing with phosphorus. Phosphorus is critical for the bones. We see phytate is an issue. So grains would particularly inhibit phosphorus um, metabolism. So this is, like I said, what I want you to kind of think about. And look at copper and zinc. Iron counteracts copper and zinc. Copper and zinc is highly, highly important. As copper is found in the bones, muscles, brain, heart, liver, and kidneys. And zinc, an antioxidant. So this is one element that I want to focus on. So let me take off. So like I said, food combinations is going to be highly important. You should look at that. Uh, I didn't want to spend too much time there. Now, secondly, I did, I wanted to pull up a couple of things. So this is from the American Osteopathic Association. And researchers find that low magnesium levels make vitamin D ineffective. So we see a relationship between magnesium and vitamin D. And magnesium is highly important uh, in energy metabolism. Quote, people are taking vitamin D supplements, but don't realize how it gets metabolized. Without magnesium, vitamin D is not really useful or safe. And that's again just one aspect, and you can go look at this article. It's called "Researchers Find Low Magnesium Levels Make Vitamin D Ineffective." We're looking at these relationships, and they're potentially suggesting that up to fifty percent of Americans may be magnesium deficiency uh, deficient. Excuse me, because they may be getting adequate levels of magnesium. That doesn't mean they're getting. Uh, assimilation and adequate absorption of magnesium. It's two different things. So you have to make sure the magnesium is present in the diet. You then have to make sure the magnesium gets into your body. And then the last step is you have to make sure the magnesium is absorbed. Same thing I talked about in a previous uh, podcast about Fat metabolism. You want to lose fat. You have three steps. You have to get the fat out of the fat cell. You have to mobilize. it. You then have to get it into transport. So now it needs to be transported so that it can be taken somewhere to be burned. And then the final step is it has to be metabolized. So you may do a weight training session fasted. Let's say you're doing a fasted weight training session. And this is all going to be dependent on your body composition, your percent body fat. Because your hormonal levels are much different, physiologically speaking. But let's say you do a weight training session and now you have, you deposited tons of fatty acids in the blood. If you stop that session and that's it, that doesn't necessarily mean, depending on how long you prevent eating right after, you eat some right after. Oh, it's a, you know, it's a wrap, especially a carb, literally a wrap, Uh, especially a carb uh, or a fat right after a workout or within an hour of workout. All those fatty acids that were in circulation are going to get redeposited. They never get burned. So this is why Lyle McDonald advocates if you're trying to lose weight, you may do something to mobilize the fat, which is like weight training. Then you go and do some aerobic cardio after to now make sure it's metabolized. So let's get off this article. Let's look at another article. Zinc deficiency affects DNA damage, oxidative stress, antioxidant defenses, and DNA repair in rats. And again, like rats, I take anything with rats with a grain of salt because we want to I don't we don't want to just say that, oh, generalizably speaking, or this is transferable knowledge to the biochemistry of a human. But we do understand that zinc deficiency directly affects uh, DNA, damage through oxidative stress. It's uh, critical for antioxidant defenses, immune system uh, and DNA repair. So I just wanted to show that zinc deficiency, And they say about 12% of Americans do not consume enough zinc. And the thing is, this is what they could measure. Normally it's gonna be, it's just like money. You know, if you're gonna say, hey, you know, this market has $3 billion circulating. Well, how much money is circulating that's unaccounted for because of cash transactions? So it's always gonna be a bigger number than what can actually be measured and represented. And it says about two billion people in the world do not address, do not uh, digest enough zinc. So we have magnesium deficiency, Zinc deficiency, vitamin D deficiency. So let's get back to the article um, really quick. And when I mean vitamin D deficiency, actually, I pulled this up really quick. Uh, So this is in an article published on healthandharvard.edu. And it's called Time for More Vitamin D, published in 2008. I'm going to get back to the original article. Uh, I'm just taking on a little diatribe here to show, but this, this picture here that I'm showing, and if you're looking at it visually on YouTube, you're looking at it visually, uh, auditory. Um, if you're just listening, I'll keep saying auditory. If you're just listening to it, um, I'll try to visualize this for you, but latitude matters. So latitude means how North or South are you from the equator? And this is going to affect how much sun exposure you get year round, meaning that as uh, let me see what the doctor's name is really quick. Just bear with me like two seconds. I'm going to find the doctor's name. Dr. Ryan Cole says it really. And Ryan, Rway, way, way, R-Y-A-N-C-O-L-E. Dr. Ryan Cole, as he says best, there's no such thing as flu season. There's only vitamin D deficiency in the winter that makes you susceptible to getting sick, contracting viruses, etc. And this is highly dependent on where you are in relation to the equator. And then obviously your skin pigmentation, which means you need more sunlight to stimulate natural vitamin D production. And in the winter, if you're not supplementing with a uh, a high quality vitamin D supplementation, you're just doing it wrong. I mean, Dr. Fauci says himself, he takes 7,000 to 8,000 IUs of vitamin D3 in the winter alone, since he can't obviously get it from the sun, depending on where he lives. So there's a latitude line on screen drawn right now called the 37th parallel. And basically it crosses through the top of Virginia, all the way through Tennessee, all the way through the top of Arkansas, through basically the top of Oklahoma, through the top of New Mexico. It cuts about, uh, actually through the top of um, New Mexico, excuse me, through Arizona, the bottom half of Nevada, and it cuts California right in half. Anybody above that 37 degrees north latitude are going to be at a great risk for vitamin D deficiency. So that's Um what is that oh that that's less Virginia excuse me that's North Carolina, but that's Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, Maine, you get the idea here. South Dakota, Montana, Washington, Northern California, Nevada, Utah, Denver, etc. You you get the idea. But where you are in relation to the equator is gonna determine. Whether you're at a high risk, a high risk of vitamin D deficiency, and also your body fat percentage is going to make you uh, susceptible as a high risk for vitamin D deficiency. Since vitamin D, we stop calling it vitamin D, it's a pro hormone that is fat soluble. And the more fat tissue you have, the less likely it is to stay in circulation. It's going to be deposited in the fat cells. So keep that in mind as well. Now, let's move back to our, to our article, and it's entitled, Are Endurance Athletes More Susceptible to Diabetes? And it's by Alex Hutchinson, and we are, I mean, we're moving right along uh, through this, this article, so let me pick up with where I left off. All right, quote, what little Epia." excuse me, epidemiological evidence exists for elite athletes, seems to bear this out as well. Let me grab a quick drink of water. I'm I'm going, we're going in today. All right. What little epidemiological evidence suggests for elite athletes seems to bear this well bear this out as well. In 2014, a team led by Merja L- uh, Lain, if I'm saying that correct, a medical researcher at the University of Helensky published data on nearly 400 former elite athletes who represented Finland in major international competitions between 1920 and 1965. So let, let, let's click on this really quick. So this is called A former career as a male elite athlete, does it protect against type 2 diabetes later in life? So let's read this really quick. And if you need the article, sign up on Athletic Holistic with an H, systems.com. Go to the Sports Performance Professional Podcast and type in your email and send it. And you can message me and I'll send you the full article if you can't find it. But their aim and hypothesis is The aim of this study was to determine the prevalence of impaired glucose regulation in male Finnish, Finland, former elite athletes and age and area match controls. We hypothesized that vigorous physical activity during young adulthood protects from disturbances in glucose regulation later in life. Now, what were their results? Compared with the controls, the former elite athletes had a significantly lower risk of type 2 diabetes. The risk of type 2 diabetes decreased with increased... LP or LTPA, Uh, and LPTA is leisure time physical activity. So the risk of type two diabetes decreased with increased leisure time uh, physical activity, which was determined by self-reported questionnaires, which can obviously be highly inaccurate. So you have to question that uh, volume. The former elite athletes also had a significantly lower risk of impaired glucose intolerance than the controls. And their conclusion was a formal career as an elite athlete protected from both type 2 diabetes and IG2. And IG2 is defined as, actually don't define it uh, here. It's in the full paper. Uh, and later in life. I'll probably say insulin glucose tolerance. or I'll probably say IGT may mean that, but don't take my word for it. <laughs> in addition, the volume of current Leisure time physical activity was inversely associated with the prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So the more active they were, it was inversely associated with uh, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So let's get back to our original article by Mr. Hutchinson. The athletes were divided into three categories, same study, endurance sports, such as running and cross-country skiing, power sports like boxing and weightlifting, and mixed sports, including hockey and basketball. So this is very interesting. Overall, compared with non-athlete controls, the former athletes were 42% less likely to have impaired glucose intolerance and 31% less likely to have diabetes. More specifically, the former endurance athletes had the lowest risk without, uh, excuse me. At the lowest risk, with a whopping 47% reduction in diabetes prevalence compared to 34% in power sports and 25% in mixed sports. So digest that really quick. So your endurance athletes from this study had your highest resistance against developing pre-diabetes later, almost 50%. You look at power sport athletes who came in second, 34% reduction or decreased risk, and mixed sport athletes were only 25, one in four mixed sport athletes uh, had a less susceptibility to developing diabetes. So look at the differences between the sports and why this prevalence may be shown. And this is why we're doing this podcast now. That's an interesting finding. And a follow-up study published earlier this year looked at how much money each group spent annually on diabetes medication. So the name of this study, there was a follow-up study. is called Cost of Diabetes Medication Among Male Former Elite Athletes in Later Life. Their aim was regular physical activity plays a major role in both prevention and treatment of type 2 diabetes. Less is known whether vigorous physical activity during young adulthood is associated with cost of diabetes medication in later life. The aim of this study is to evaluate this question. So, What was their result? The total cost of diabetes medication per person was significantly lower among the former endurance and mixed group athletes compared with the controls. Of the former endurance athletes, 0.4% used insulin while 5.2% of the controls used insulin. Conclusion, a career as former endurance sprint jumper or team game athletes seems to reduce the cost of diabetes medication uh, later in life. But later in life, in comparison to non-athletes, but if we look at these athletes, this group of athletes and we look at the within variance, we see based on what the study uh, said previous, the previous one I just mentioned um, that endurance athletes have the highest resistance Power athletes have the second highest resistance. Team athletes have the third highest resistance at about one in four. Endurance athletes, it's almost one in two. That's a huge difference. And we need to figure out why, why this is the case. Some of this goes back to the, what, overemphasis on carbohydrate loading in sports that are not glycolytic in nature. if that makes any sense. It may not be efficacious. Now, maybe, Like I said, they go after recovery, but it may not actually be efficacious long term. I won't say it doesn't make sense. I'll say it may not be optimal and efficacious. So let's continue reading back to our original article. Quote, and a follow up study published earlier this year looked at how much money each group spent annually on diabetes medication. Researchers found that controls spend an average of three hundred and seventy six euros per year. The former power athletes averaged 393 euros per year. The former mixed sport athletes averaged 272 euros and the former endurance athletes averaged just 81 euros per year. So controls spent the most money, the most money on diabetes medication power athletes spent the second most uh, endurance, uh, excuse me, endurance athletes spent the least amount and mixed sport athletes spent the third amount. So this is interesting that even though mixed sport athletes have basically the highest risk of getting type two diabetes, they spend the third, they spend the second least on diabetes medication. So whether they actually end up contracting it, they appear to not to contract it at the same 25% increased predisposition uh, from their sport uh, as can be correlated or documented by how much They're actually spending on diabetes medication, or maybe they don't, don't, you know, during some or doing some different method, et cetera. But that's an interesting finding. Moving forward, such findings leave questions open. Of course, for one thing, Liang points out, quote, the training system of that time differs from nowadays. End quote. Gatorade was only invented in 1965. The last year the athletes in the study competed internationally. Today's athletes may face a different set of risks. The first energy gels didn't show up until the late 1980s, co-developed as it happens by Tim Notes. No It's also possible the low rate of type 2 diabetes in endurance athletes is simply correlation, not causation a result of the genetic characteristics of good endurance athletes rather than a protective effect of training. It's interesting. Quote, maybe the successful elite in Olympic endurance are the ones who survived the gauntlet of sport nutrition and still perform well. So we've selected, excuse me. So we selected for their ability to not get sick while on those diets suggests Ben Greenfield, a best-selling fitness author and Ironman triathlete. And, and I think they let that sit down. Look at what he said. He said. "Who survive the gauntlet of sports nutrition? He described it. As who survived the gauntlet gauntlet of sports nutrition and still perform well. So I'm not going to comment on that. I just want that to resonate. Look how he described it. Let's continue. Overall, though, the metabolic characteristics of endurance athletes don't suggest a group at elevated risk of diabetes, says Javier Gonzalez, an assistant professor of human physiology at the University of Bath in England, or Bath, Bath. maybe I'm saying that wrong, in England, who studies exercise metabolism. Quote, I'm open to the idea, he says, although I currently see very little, if any, good evidence to support it. So, where does this is Alex now talking the the author. So where does this idea that endurance athletes are a diabetes epidemic waiting to happen come from? So we're, we're actually one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven 11. So we're 11 paragraphs from concluding this. appreciate you hanging in there and holding tight. I believe we're approaching the one-hour mark. But let's continue. The link between carbohydrate intake and endurance athletes and elevated blood sugars most widely accepted among low-carbohydrate, high-fat converts, who often take it as both an article of faith and a source of motivation. Quote, athletes with prediabetes are surprisingly common, end quote, claims a poster on one of the Reddit threads devoted to the topic, who noted that He had been a high-fat ketogenic diet for more than four years. I contacted him to ask whether he'd had high blood sugar prior to switching his diet. Excuse me. Experience. This has happened to me a lot. This was from a few podcasts and articles I came across. Continuing. Still. There are truly elite endurance athletes who have developed type 2 diabetes, notes Paul Larson, an an adjunct professor of performance physiology at Redgrave, the five-time Olympic champion rower from Britain who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes before the Sydney Games in 2000. And this is so before games, and I believe he may potentially have been competing. Redgrave isn't sure what, if anything, triggered it. Quote, I haven't asked too many questions about my condition, he says. End quote. His pre-diagnosis training diet involved a massive 6,000 calories a day, including plenty of pasta and and sugary treats. Now, like I said, just, just keep that in retrospect and think about it. How many athletes do you know who eat like that? And they justify it by, oh, yeah, man, I'm training. I'm training hard. And again, I've been an coach for six years. How many athletes actually justify that? And how many practitioners, sports performance professionals, actually approach nutrition from a minimal effective dose that we talk about in training? Like, how much do you actually need to recover? We just throw out what? These absolute numbers. And again, I'm not throwing shade on anybody. I'm just trying to create context. We throw out numbers. All right, it started at 4,500 calories which may be a good starting point, but again, it may be too much and maybe too little, et cetera. And like I said, how do you know based on the current state of the body, which we always, if you're not clinically testing this, which I wouldn't tell people to do because that's just impractical dollars-wise, time-wise, et cetera. But there's a lot of unknowns that go into prescribing something for somebody. If it's not more specific, this is why I go on haplotype. Your bloodline. But he was eating massive 6,000 calories a day, including plenty of pasta and, and sugary treats. And just think about linemen, throwers, and what that culture looks like having to have put on excessive amounts of weight. I talked about this in a previous podcast. Let's continue. But Red Great adds he also has a family history of the disease through his grandfather, which may have been information known or not known uh, prior to. that program uh, being prescribed for him which would mean like oh we don't you know we may want to cycle this better if you do feel like the person needs adequate carbohydrates based on their training if they're doing hypertrophy work but not doing hypertrophy work it doesn't make any sense but he was a rower so uh he needed uh, glycolytic for sure Continuing. Last year, Lauren co-wrote an article in the journal Sports Medicine Open titled Athletes Fit But Unhealthy, in which he argued that the superficial aerobic fitness of endurance athletes can hide metabolic problems like systematic inflammation and insulin resistance. If you carry excessive weight, excessive body fat, you are in a state of low-grade chronic inflammation. And I did this in a a paper and a presentation I did in my master's um, program uh, at Purdue University on the ketogenic diet. And it Uh, Eliciting low grade inflammation. It also makes the gut more permeable as well. So it allows more uh, nutrients undigested to pass through the digestive tract and cause various amounts of issues. Uh, And I I can send that presentation if anybody wants it. Just sign up at sports uh, at, excuse me, at athleticholisticwithanhsystems.com and go to the Sports Performance Professional Podcast tab, type in your email, send me a message. I'll send you that presentation and that paper as well. Continuing, that doesn't, however, mean he thinks all endurance athletes are at risk. Quote, the correct answer is it depends, says Larson, uh, Larson, end quote. The relevant risk factors include genetic differences, training patterns and dietary habits. In other words, the athlete's risk of developing prediabetes is entirely individual. Now, let's go to his article called Athletes Fit But Unhealthy. So, so the name of the article is called Athletes Fit But but unhealthy. And let's just just read this abstract really quick. Let me take a quick drink of water. The great thing about this is he's asking questions. He's trying to piece things together because what we tend to think makes sense in theory and on paper tends to be the complete opposite of what happens in real life. Just because you exercise doesn't mean you're more healthy. Just because you work out doesn't mean you're less susceptible to uh, diseases over someone who doesn't work out it's all individual but it takes a, a deep level of understanding so from the article athletes fit but unhealthy by philip and paul larson abstract while the words fit and healthy are used synonymously in everyday language the terms have entirely separate meanings Fitness describes the ability to perform a given exercise, exercise task, and health explains a person's state of well-being, where physiological systems work in harmony. Although we typically view athletes as fit and healthy, they often are not. The global term we place on unhealthy athletes is the overtraining syndrome, which talks about training, not health status. I, that was my comment. Sorry. Continue with the article. In this current opinion, we propose that two primary drivers may contribute to the development of overtraining syndrome, namely high training intensity and the modern day highly processed high glycemic diet. Again, this is ph- phenomenal that they're looking at it from this perspective. Not only are they looking at it from high training intensity, overvolumization, lack of workload management, but they're also saying that overtraining syndrome can particularly or potentially be induced by a modern day highly processed high glycemic diet refined grains refined processed sugars etc cetera, etc cetera. both factors elicit a sympathetic response through the hypothalamic pituitary, pituitary adrenal axis in turn driving Systemic reactive oxygen species production, inflammation, and a metabolic substrate imbalance towards carbohydrate and away from fat oxidation. So you're losing your metabolic flexibility, meaning you're trying to burn fat at rest and switch to carbs when you're exercising as the primary source of uh, fuel manifesting in an array of symptoms often labeled as overtraining syndrome so it gets to a point that i elaborated in my very first podcast about having you in order to understand the phenomenon you have to know its origins and its history because in order to know its origins and history you can then make a proper diagnosis and once you have a proper diagnosis you can then do a prognosis and try to predict what is going to happen with this one. Whole- long term. But if you do not understand what you're looking at, if you do not understand the details and the intricacies of the phenomenon, if you make a wrong diagnosis, everything after that is wrong, if that makes sense. When I mean wrong, it's going to be ineffective at achieving the outcome that you're looking for because you're looking at it completely wrong. If that makes sense, I'm looking at Saturn and I'm supposed to be Looking at Pluto, and I think Pluto is Saturn. That's wrong. So any initiative I create for Saturn, because I thought it was Pluto, it's not going to be again. It's not going to achieve the end result we're looking for. Last couple sentences with this uh, paper: We argue that practitioners, scientists, and athletes may work towards health and alleviate overtraining syndrome by lowering training intensity. Always advocated for that Uh, better management, and again, minimal effective dose. Don't understand how little you need to do in order to improve if you focus on biomechanical principles and motor learning principles, specialized training, and removing processed and or high glycemic foods from the diet, which together enhance fat oxidation rates. Athletes should be fit and healthy. Love it. Great, great article. Um, It's called Athletes Fit But Unhealthy. Again, I can send you the full article uh, if you need it. Now, let's go back to our original paper or our our original article. Quote, Larson's point is that almost everyone acknowledges, including Peter Atiyah, whose professional focus these days is on tailoring individual approaches to maximizing longevity in his patients. Same thing that I'm advocating for as well that I do on my site, looking at haplotype. Now looking at variety, I'm looking at what do you actually need? What is complementary to you? And this can also be applied in what's called, or utilized in applied kinesiology as well. "Quote: If you don't take care of real people," Atia says, "you don't appreciate the heterogeneity in the population." That's, completely accurate. For that reason, general statements about whether endurance athletes are at risk of diabetes are doomed uh, to inaccuracy. At one extreme, I think the probability, excuse me, At one extreme, quote, I think the probability that a Tour de France cyclist is going to get diabetes is as close to zero as possible, Atias says. They are absolutely athletes who can completely overwhelm the glucose disposal side such that it doesn't matter at all what they eat. And furthermore, there are people genetically who can do that, whether they're athletes or not, end quote. And I completely agree. How many athletes do you see who particularly may have these genetics? They eat nothing but skittles and uh, you know, and cakes and cereal and processed, refined carbs, etc. They maintain a high, uh, maintain a high muscle, lean body fat uh, percent, uh, absolute value. And they also maintain low body fat levels. Doesn't matter what they eat, how processed it is, and for whatever reason, they're able to handle that. Stick a you know a a, 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 sn- a, a mini snicker bars in another athlete's mouth and they blow up. So we have these, you know, these instances where certain people are just better able to handle high glucose loading. Some aren't, but as he kind of alluded to, that happens at the professional level, which I'm at, the collegiate level, power five, which I've been, high school level, I've been there as well. And even throughout the youth levels, if it is being prescribed, it's a one size fits all approach that is general recommendations. And it leaves the gap filling to the person who may or may not do that because they're going to defer for whatever reason. So we definitely do need more individualization and stop going off general guidelines that are outdated and may not actually fit a person's ethnic background and certain predispositions that come with that. See bloodlines, family history, ethnicity. Um, This is why I focus on haplotype. Continuing to that point, Israeli researchers recently used continuous glucose monitors to compare sample blood sugar data from two subjects. In one subject, eating a banana caused an immediate spike while eating a cookie had no effect in the other subject. The opposite was true. Through this paper, though, excuse me, though this paper has attracted criticism for method- methodological flaws, it raises an important point. How can you eat right if right is different for everyone? So, 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 so let's, uh, let's click on this real quick. This is on Twitter. So Don't want to look here. So let's look at this paper. See if this is a paper. All right. So this is the PDF of the full paper. And this paper is called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of uh, excuse me, Glycemic Responses. So let's let's, let's just read this summary really quick. And this is called, again, Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. Summary. Elevated postprandial blood glucose after meal levels constitute a global epidemic and a major risk factor for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. But existing dietary methods for controlling them have limited efficacy. Here, we continuously monitor Monitored week-long glucose levels in an 800-person cohort, uh, cohort, cohort, excuse me, measured responses to 46,898 meals, and found high variability in the response to identical meals, suggesting that universal dietary recommendations may have limited utility we devised a machine learning algorithm that integrates blood parameters, dietary habits, anthropometrics, physical activity, and gut microbiota measured in this cohort, uh, cohort, uh, cohort, and showed that it accurately predicts personalized postprandial uh, post, glycemic response to real life meals. Yo, this is crazy. We validated these predictions in an independent 100-person cohort. Finally, a blinded, randomized, controlled dietary intervention based on this algorithm resulted in significantly lower post-prandial responses and consistent alterations to gut microbiota configuration. Together, our results suggest that personalized diets may successfully modify Elevated postprandial blood glucose and its metabolic consequences. You should definitely check this article out for sure. It's called personalized nutrition by prediction of glycemic responses. Let's get back to the article. How can you eat right if right is different for everyone? Exactly right. For both ATIA and Larson, the answer is to wear continuous glucose monitors, which are enjoying a mini-surge in popularity among tech-savvy self-trackers, despite being invasive and hard to obtain without a doctor's uh, assistance. It's one of the most uh, quote It's one of the most informative inputs I've had in my life," says ATIA. Using a CGM, a continuous glucose monitors, has helped him understand how his blood sugar responds to food, exercise, sleep, and stress. I mean, as I say, while invasive, I'm sure you you learn a lot. Thomas, the New Zealand-based bioengineering researcher, has come to a similar conclusion. Her study of endurance athletes wearing Continuous glucose monitors showed that high blood sugar is indeed possible in runners and cyclists, with three of the 10 subjects producing fasting levels in the pre-diabetic range. But the links between diet, training level, and blood sugar were far from clear. The athletes with the highest blood sugar weren't necessarily eating the most carbs or exercising the least, meaning that, relatively speaking, a small amount of carbs were having a much greater effect. And uh, I say this as well because your blood sugar, look at decibels, so sound. And how sound interacts with your body. Look at decibels and blood sugar levels. I mean, five decibels literally can uh, affect your blood glucose levels. So they, they rise up and down, especially as indicated in relation to stress. And even just listening to music uh, can alter your blood sugar levels. Maybe you don't need to, you know, to, to uh, keep that aware, but just understanding how sensitive it is the body's constantly adapting to stress and changing in relation to stress. While Thomas sees a future of personalized nutrition, the continuous glucose monitors becoming as ubiquitous as heart rate monitors, the data suggests some more immediate takeaways that don't require any subcutaneous sensors. No matter what type of athlete you are, your food intake should match your training output. I completely agree here, so this is great advice. Um, and you don't need a sports drink in a jail to fuel during a one-hour jog or to recover afterward. Completely accurate. Quote, for years, says David, the Mercer College researcher, the sports drink industry has been brainwashing us into thinking that we need to drink as much as possible and that glucose sports drinks are almost always superior for performance and recovery. And I completely agree with this because you have to understand and ask yourself again, Who? where did this message originate from? Did this... Spike in sports drink marketing and sports drink uh, philosophy, or even in a particular nutrition protocol, where did that come from? Who was the emerging, you know, backer of it? Was it an industry company, such as if you look at iron and phytates? A company—I didn't do it in this study. I didn't do it in this um, this podcast, but um, a study analyzed the rate of iron. Uh, absorption and a decrease in the absorption from wheat bran. So basically looking at how phytates and phytic acid inhibits iron absorption. The study found no evidence that phytates significantly, a significant rate impede iron absorption or iron levels in the serum, iron levels in the body, calcium levels in the body as well. And the study was published or excuse me, published. The study was um, funded by, by Kellogg, so like you know, industry-funded research. This is the issue here. So when you actually go look at the data, the numbers did change. So the the more uh, they, the more uh, amount in ounces or grams of uh, wheat that they ate, that they gave them the biscuits, the wheat biscuits. It was refined wheat and then whole wheat. Um, the calcium concentrations did lower, but not significantly, but they lowered within the context of that 10 week study, I believe. Uh, And then iron levels, uh, iron digestion was completely uh, halted as well. So, but there were no, you know, um, and this was in healthy women and there were no um, like health status changes. But again, we're talking about 10 weeks versus over a long period of time. Um, But anyway, that's just an, an, That's just one avenue of looking at industry-sponsored research and what types of outcomes are they trying to find? Because, again, how can something be so important that didn't? I'm not not saying that not because it didn't exist prior to it, mean, it's not important. But I'm just saying is it being overemphasized. And you will learn, too, that, you know, when everybody's on something nine times out of 10, the truth and the reality is going to be, among a minority core uh, group of individuals who know that, see, that's nonsense. Everyone's jumping on this. See, the real reality is here where no one wants to focus because there's no money here. Just like there's no money in promoting eating, you know, your fruits and vegetables. But hey, we got the sports drink, et cetera. Anyway, we're not trying to get into like, uh, you know, politics or trying to get into personal opinion. We're trying to stay completely objective here. And that's just a fact of the matter that, you know, who's funding research uh, is important. Because there may be some bias um, involved. Continuing. Modern guidelines have evolved as well. The current American College of Sports Medicine position statement on nutrition and athletic performance suggests that carbohydrate intake should be greater on hard training days and less on easy uh, days. A practice about two thirds of elite distance runners. In a study, in a recent study reported following. So let's look at this last study and we are about to wrap this up. So the name of the study is called A Mismatch Between Athlete Practice and Current Sports Nutrition Guidelines Among Elite Female and Male Middle and Long Distance Runners. So let's read this really quick quote. Contemporary nutrition guidelines provide a variety of periodized and time-sensitive recommendations, but current information regarding the knowledge and practice of these strategies among world-class athletes is limited. The aim of this study was to investigate this theme by implementing a questionnaire on dietary periodization practices in national uh, or international level females and male middle and long distance runners slash racewalkers. The questionnaire aimed to gain information on between and within-day dietary choices, as well as timing of pre- and post-training meals and practices of training with low or high carbohydrate availability. Data are shown as percentage of all athletes with differences in responses between subgroups, uh, shown as chai, uh, chai square uh. X to the power of two when the p value is uh, basically less than 0.05. So, this is just some statistical analysis stuff. Uh, Nearly two thirds of all athletes reported that they aim to eat more food on or after hard training days. Most athletes said, uh... oh, excuse me, most athletes said they focus on adequate fueling, 96% of them, and adequate um, carbohydrate and protein recovery. 87% 87% of them around key sessions. So they're basically tar- targeting protein and carbohydrates around their sessions, about 87% of them. And about two of th- the athletes said they focus uh, on adequate fueling around those times as well. 26% per of athletes, 11% of middle-distance runners, and 42% of long-distance runners reported to undertake training in the to undertake training in the fastest state. While 11% said they periodically restrict carbohydrate intake, with 30% ingesting carbohydrates during training sessions. Our findings show that elite endurance runners appear to execute pre- and post-key session nutrition recovery recommendations. However, very few athletes deliberately undertake some contemporary dietary periodization approaches, such as training in the fastest state or periodically restricting carbohydrate intake. This study suggests mismatches between athlete practice and current and developing sports nutrition guidelines. And and I I actually just want to make a point on this study is that this is what I mean as well. And I haven't brought this up yet, but I've talked about this uh, on Twitter and other places, and specifically in my research uh, within my PhD uh, program in sport is that obviously we understand that there's gaps between what's happening in academia, so what's happening in theory, what's being studied, uh, and then what's actually happening in the real world. Um, And so what I mean is, is that there is no original body of research for athletes by people who work with athletes. If that makes sense. I'm not going to say by for athletes by athletes and it can be previously what they did in the Soviet Union when they had previous athletes who potentially became the sports scientists. But in this case, we're talking about original research for athletes by individuals who work with athletes. OK. And I'm not saying that because you want an athlete doesn't mean you can't study athletes and offer value. I, we're talking about probability here. OK. So that means that the people who are actually coaching and working with the athletes should be the individuals who are manipulating training programs, what athletes are doing. And studying this and trying to develop a original body of research and evidence specific to the sport. So biochemistry, I'm not talking about, oh, biochemistry and then let's transfer this to back Basketball. I'm talking about energetics in the context of basketball, sports psychology in context of baseball, specifically a pitcher or et cetera. Strength and conditioning, biomechanics, specifically in relation to kinetics and kinematic changes or differences, et cetera, in sprinting. And what I mean is, is not allowing sports medicine to dictate what you're doing in training. And again, I'm not saying that this can't happen, but a lot of the research comes from these areas, physical therapy, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, uh, bodybuilding. And a lot of these are then applied to team sports uh, athletes. And again, I'm not saying that. Sports medicine is not doing a phenomenal job at this or presenting on topics. But the point being is it's not original research of people who work with athletes and coming from that thought process, coming from that paradigm, and then the ones who are conducting the research. Because if I'm a sports medicine uh, practitioner, I may be, everything that I may study may be from a lens of injury prevention. Now, again, if you're working with athletes, that's going to be um, the, end, the end goal anyway. Like You want to prevent injury, you want availability, but you may be coming from more of a medical standpoint, more, more from a injury prevention standpoint, because that's what physical therapy is, is what sport medicine is looking at. So you may be coming more from a medical paradigm, which may be adding more professionalization, more Um, rigor to the field as a whole to try to create more respect in that field but it may not necessarily be best for the development of athletes in many different areas because like i said this is what they did in other countries who have a more of a communistic approach to it i mean communist the government is instituting this important resources in there so let's say for instance in the soviet union you had to one compete at the Olympic level. You had to place, you had to be in the top 10, 20% of your class academically. You had to, again, have placed a medal in the Olympics. And then you had to go through uh, rigorous education. In this case, you had to obtain your PhD in that particular sport. And then you had to demonstrate that you could apply what you studied in practice. Meaning you had to get results with the athletes and conduct studies with elite level athletes, which we do not do in the United States. So not only did you have to be a high level athlete yourself, you then had to demonstrate, uh, Above, I mean, elite level academics in the sciences and mathematics and STEM, et cetera, to even get into the sports institutes. You then had to get your PhD in the in the particular sport or whatever it is you you were looking at, so that you could conduct research. And then, lastly, you had to demonstrate you could obtain results with athletes as a coach before you could move up. So this is what I mean, is that they were developing research for athletes, training those people who are going to work athletes to be able to conduct research, giving them special concentrated study in the sport, biomechanics, sport psychology, specific nutrition, energetics, biochemistry, physics, and then looking to see if this person has the skill set to apply this with the athlete and get the changes. Can you build a better athlete? Can you develop a better athlete? If no, then maybe you stay in the lab. You're not going to be able to coach because you can't demonstrate that you can do it. And again, I'm not saying that a lot of coaches weren't able to do that, but I'm just saying is that's what I mean by developing a body of research. And again, it's just no uh, not on uh, physical therapy or sports medicine or you know strength sciences uh, or et cetera. I'm just saying is we have to look at this holistically and from a different vantage point. Now let's finish off with this article to end to close this article. If you can get if you can get this balance right, then the overwhelming consensus of epidemiological and metabolic evidence suggests that rumors of a pre-diabetes epidemic among endurance athletes have been greatly exaggerated. Hitting the roads and trails will, if anything, dramatically reduce your risk of becoming insulin resistant, but it won't make you immune. If you're eating like a Tour de France rider, just, just make sure you're training like one too. And that's where we'll end. And I'll say the name of the article one more time. The name of the article that's on screen right now is called Are Endurance Athletes More Susceptible to Diabetes? It was published on outsideonline.com and is by Alex Hutchinson. I thought it was a phenomenal article. I really appreciate you guys hanging around for this long, another long one. And I'll potentially do a second installment of this because, in just a little teaser, I'm going to look at a study. And let me actually pull up, um, let me actually go over the research now So I'm going to pull this up one more time. All right. So just to give you one more backdrop of the name of the topic of today's podcast, which is on screen now called can sport performance professionals be the catalyst to end cardiovascular disease? and biological aging after your sport career. So if I take this off screen now, oh, I see what's happening. So if I take this off screen, and then I wanna take you to what we will focus on in part two. So in part, we we're talking about again. Can it help prevent it after your sporting career? So there's a study called the master's athlete in Olympic weightlifting, training, lifestyle, health challenges, and gender differences. And there's also another study called masters or Ponds: examining injury and chronic disease in male master athletes and chess players compared to population norms from the Canadian Community Health Survey. And I want to quickly read you the abstracts of these papers. So the background of this first paper, the Masters Athlete in Olympic Weightlifting, published in 2020, I mean, this is a deep study. uh, Background, Olympic weightlifting requires strength, speed, and explosive power. Vigorous physical activities such as Olympic weightlifting for older adults has many benefits from improved strength, social interactions, and a healthy and independent lifestyle. Little is known about the training habits, health, and lifestyle of master masters weightlifters that includes top level athletes as well as beginners. And there is a death, a dearth, excuse me, a dearth of data on women. The primary aim was to describe demographics, training habits, and health, including prevalence of injury and chronic disease in male and female masters, athletes, in Olympic weightlifting. The secondary aim was to study gender differences in the age and impact of menopause on participation in their sport. Conclusion. 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 Older athletes are capable of rigorous training programs and top performances while adjusting to changes due to biological aging. Weightlifting athletes, coaches, and health professionals must be aware of patterns of injuries and gender differences to incorporate successful prevention strategies. Knowledge of presentations of menopause and impact of menopausal symptoms on training allows women and healthcare providers to make informed treatment decisions. And one reason I bring this up is because they do target biological aging potentially and seeing how this changes. Uh, if you, you continue a career, whether you basically take up physical activity or a sport uh, later on in life, I mean, like. At 50s, what they talk about. Uh, and then I wanted to look at why isn't this necessarily uh, popular among the entire group of former athletes. We're talking about a very small, a very large study here looking at um, this particular uh, demographic, Olympic weightlifting uh, and potentially some CrossFit crossover. But again, that's only a small subset of how many people could potentially be being poured in here. And I want to touch, I'll touch on that later. And the the second study, Masters or Ponds, Examining Injury and Chronic Disease in Male Masters Athletes and Chess Players Compared to Population Norms from the Canadian Community Health Survey. Let's read this background and conclusion really quick. Background. Identifying the optimal type and the amount of activity for the maintenance of function in older adults has proved challenging. This is why I bring this up. On the one hand, Masters athletes have been proposed as the ideal model of successful aging, but most of this research has been focused on physical function. On the other hand, the importance of cognitive engagement has been emphasized, which may be more strongly related to activities such as playing chess. The current study aims to compare physical health outcomes, prevalence of physical injury and chronic disease among older athletes and chess players. Masters athletes and chess players were recruited from track and field and chess competitions within the province of Ontario. In addition to these primary groups, moderately active and inactive older adults from Canadian Community Health Survey were also included for comparison. Conclusion. Findings from this study indicate that both athletic and cognitive engagement may be positively related to the physical health of older adults, since master athletes and chess players reported a lower prevalence of chronic diseases. Importantly, the results expand our current understanding of health by providing evidence for physical health outcomes associated with activity that is primarily associated with cognitive health. And these two studies go very, very deep. So I'm excited uh, for the next podcast. I thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you want to sign up for our email list, go to athleticholistic with an H systems.com. Go to the sports performance professional podcast tab, scroll down, type in your email your first name, press the send button, and you will get a confirmation sent to your inbox. Thank you again for being here. Stay tuned until we're back again next time. Thank you.